Chapter 8, Part 2 of 40,000 Miles Over Land and Water. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. 40,000 Miles Over Land and Water by Ethel Gwendolyn Vincent. Coaching Through the North Island of New Zealand. It's Hot Lakes and Geysers, Part 2. For the next twelve miles we were driving through the bush, the damp steaming up on all sides and showing the vegetation in all the glory of its luxuriance, the leaves and moss shining with dripping raindrops. Nature was perspiring at every pore and putting forth a new growth in the moist heat. At first we missed the familiar foliage of the oak or elm or beech, but soon you grow accustomed to the gray skeleton trunks branching off so high in the stem of the native tree. There was the karaka, a tree with thick glossy foliage and a red berry which the natives eat, the pruriri, which is the hardest of New Zealand woods, the katukatea, or white pine, and the totara, this bush has the bright olive-green foliage that imparts so much vividness to the bush. It has a durable wood which worms never touch, and for that reason is much used for the piles of wharves. Then there is the rimu, which, when the bark is stripped off, is found to be of a blood-red inside. It produced the beautiful effect we saw as we passed along, when sections of these trees rotting on the ground mingled their crimson blood with the yellow mosses and lichen. Again and again we remarked on the great curiosity of the rata, which is found throughout both islands. The rata begins like a creeper, hanging down in tendrils from the branches and joining together below them to form a stem about one-third of the size of the trunk. Growing gradually downwards, it circles round and closes in under the roots, gradually eating into and sucking the life from the tree. It performs the part of an ungrateful child who kills the parent who gave it life. Along the coast, the same curious formation is found about the trees, but there it is called Pohutu Kawa and grows in exactly the opposite way, striking from the roots upward and performing the same work of death with its fibrous arms. Sometimes this pohutokawa is also called the Christmas tree from the bright red blossom that flowers at Christmas. They say the effect of the bush at a distance and when the trees are intertwined by this scarlet mass of blossom is very beautiful. The general idea is that the rata and pahutukawa are produced by a species of caterpillar about a foot long, but we found many of the islanders do not agree with the theory. We brought one of these caterpillars home with us, and it is still preserved in a tin case. The giji, a small rush or coarse grass growing in isolated clumps on the trunks of the trees, forms another special feature of the bush but the chief is that wonderful tangled mass of tropical undergrowth and the tree ferns which grow in large clumps their fibrous black trunks attain to a height of six feet expanding at the top into feathery arms long and graceful in their sweeping curves nestling under their broad shoulders are every other species of fern the beautiful crepe fern so called from the crisp double texture of the fronds 
the hyane, or creeping lycopodium, the kikaiko, or the polypodium, the panaka, or asplenium, and the manga manga, or creeping fern. Then there are all kinds of parasites, like the terraramoa, or climbing bramble. The latter has a red or yellow berry and a prickly, bristling leaf, which has given to it the name of the lawyer's plant, or bush lawyer. There is the cario, climbing, wiry vine, the supple jack of the colonists, the kakai, kohai, and piquiarero, or clematis, and the hinao, which blossoms with a white flower and has an astringent pulp, the bark furnishing a black dye to the natives. Beneath all there is a carpet of bright green moss, three inches thick. It is very difficult to give any adequate idea of the extraordinary luxuriance of these bush forests. I could hardly have believed before what wonderful shades of coloring could be contained in a single tangle of green. There is something about the bush which prevents you saying it is tropical, partly on account of the trees which look sparse and hardy, partly on account of the damp climate, but it is nevertheless as beautiful as any tropical jungle. We were very much struck by the oppressive silence and the absence of all bird life. We heard the whir of two wood pigeons and the twitter of a tui once or twice. It was getting dusk as we emerged from the bush, and quite dark before we saw the black waters of Lake Rochrua. Clouds of steam and vapor rising from the hot sulfur and mineral springs told us the whereabouts of Ohainmutu. I confess that the last part of the drive nature had been asserting herself, and I was too tired, hungry, and sore from the jolting to feel interest in anything but an arrival at the lake house. We found the coach and party from Tauranga, the other route to the hot lakes, had just arrived there, and on comparing notes we saw that our road had been infinitely worse, but that we had been saved from a tossing last night on the sea in a miserable little steamer. We had coached fifty miles during that day. Ohenbutu is in the center of the hot lake district. It lies on the shores of Lake Rotrua, a sheet of water twenty-seven miles broad. Mr. Robert Graham has built his hotel, the Lake House, in the midst of a Maori settlement, surrounded by sulfur fumes. In the garden, he has enclosed several hot springs to form medicinal baths, but Sulfur Point, the site of the government sanatorium and the proposed township of Rotorua, contains the greatest wonders. Here is Te Kahangi, the painkiller, a bath of dark-colored water, the priest's bath, Oawata, a clear pool of bubbling hot water, and Madame Rachel's bath. In all of these, the water is at boiling point. They possess the most wonderful curative properties for those suffering from rheumatism, sciatica, lumbago, spinal disorders, cutaneous diseases, etc. Analysis shows the water to contain chloride of sodium, potassium, and lithium, sulfate of soda, silicate of soda, lime and magnesia, iron and aluminum oxides, and sulfuric acid. The stories told of the wonderful cures affected are endless, and as they become more generally known, there can be no doubt that Ohainmutu will become the great health resort from neighboring countries, and indeed from Europe. Near Sulphur Point are the cream cups, 
the sulfur cups, the coffee pot, and the fumaroles, pools of white boiling mud impregnated with sulfur and arsenic. In cold weather, the natives will sit for hours up to their chins in these hot mud holes for the sake of the warmth, and winter and summer they are always bathing in the warm water of the bay in Lake Rotrua. Tired as we were, we went out in the evening to see the Maori temple in the settlement. It is of weatherboard with a corrugated iron roof, but inside it contains the most grotesque and hideous monstrosities. The Maori idea of religion takes the form of a carved wooden ancestor, stunted and deformed, with the eyes of muttonfish shell staring out of the head. They stand in rows round the temple. The beams of the ceiling and the carved pillar in the center of the temple are painted in ochre and hematite, producing a gaudy and startling effect. We looked for one or two of the native waris, or huts, as we came home. They are miserable hovels built on the ground, with the uncovered earth as a floor. A litter of grass or rushes forms the bed, and all have a wooden bolster with a place hollowed out for the neck to rest in. I cannot say much for the comfort of Lake House. There is one long passage down the center, which is divided on either side into square boxes about six feet by six. These have uncarpeted floors and are most primitively furnished. Sunday, September 28th. It was a fine morning, and it had been agreed overnight that in that case we must for once overcome all Sabbath-keeping scruples, get up at five in the morning, and leave in the coach at six. Driving by the shores of Rotrua, we were rewarded for our early start by the beauty of the lights and shadows playing on the mountain sides, reflected from the floating cloudlets above, by the first freshness of the keen morning air, and by that subtle feeling that comes with an early rise of being superior to one's neighbor. We had need to sustain these sensations during the course of the next few days, with their successive early starts varying from 5 to 7 a.m., out in the middle of the lake, we saw the island of Mokoya, in connection with which is told the pretty little Maori legend of Hinamoy. Charmed, it is said, by the notes of the lute of Tutankai, her lover, she fastened six empty gourds round her back and floated across from the mainland to Mokoya, hiding herself in Hinamoy's bath until a favorable opportunity presented itself of appearing before Tutaneka. When I say we were in the highlands, I shall have described the first five of the ten miles' drive to Weroa. It ended with a bold mountain, burned black and bare, with a deep gully winding round its base, following a pass through the mountains. We suddenly came out on an open moor, and then plunged into the dense forest of the Tikitapu bush. It is a glorious bit of bush, with the tree ferns growing to an enormous height. The road is cut through its mist, and overhead the trees close in and form a cool twilight. Through this avenue we caught our first glimpse of the blue waters of Tikatira, or the Blue Lake. It is only a sheet of very clear blue water, lying in the hollow of the mountains, which are covered with brown feathery bracken, and yet we were all attracted and fascinated by it. There was nothing grand or striking, but we said and thought it was lovely. The road runs round on a level with the lake, and we saw that the mountains dwindle into a low hill to a point where the road and the lake meet. This hill is all that divides the blue lake from Rotokakahi, 
or the Green Lake. It lies at a level of 80 feet lower than the Blue Lake, and it was very strange, just at this spot, being able to compare the visible descent between the blue water on the one hand and the green on the other. Strange it is that the Green Lake does not in the least attract the eye like the, its blue sister. As we came near the village of Waroa, a smell of sweetbriar from the hedges bordering the road on either side perfumed the air for nearly a quarter of a mile. We passed the temple and some waris made of rushes hung and plaited from a pole in the center. The natives rushed excitedly out of these and followed the carriage, clothed in their one white garment with striped blankets, blue, yellow, and red, thrown loosely round them. By the time we drew up at the Terrace Hotel, we were the center of a motley group of Maoris, chattering, gesticulating, and whining, the Maori way of expressing pleasure. Mr. Graham had no difficulty in picking out a fine, strong-looking crew to man our boat across Lake Tarawera. We ran down the steep, winding path which led us to the rough boat house in the creek on Lake Tarawera. Here there was a great delay whilst the crew, led by Sophia, the native guide, were mustering, and it was then discovered that our party was one too many for the licensed number of the large flat-bottomed boat. This proved to be the beginning of our troubles with a very fat old gentleman with a broad Northumbrian dialect, who, having joined himself on, uninvited to our party, proved always the one de trop. No one need feel sorry for him or think he was neglected, for he took good care of himself, was always to be found the first to be seated in the boat, and in the best place. He helped himself freely to the luncheon we had brought, and required no pressure to take his full share of the whiskey bottle. Once we were out on the lake, we were delighted with the grand, rugged beauty of the surrounding mountains. The three flat cones of the Tarawera Mountains loomed in the distance, and somewhere hidden away in that range, we were told, there was a curious natural bridge, sacred to the Maoris for a burial place. About two years ago, the water of Lake Tarawera suddenly changed and became green and muddy, remaining so for a year. It then returned to its natural state, being perfectly clear and wholesome for drinking. The natives rowed very slowly and unevenly, playing with their oars while they munched hunches of bread and took deep draughts from the lake for breakfast. The first breath of wind was the excuse for hoisting a primitive sail fastened by a string of green flax. A blue veil attached to the hat of one of the natives gave rise to a laugh about the blue riband movement, which they quite appreciated and joined in when translated to them by Mr. Graham. We were anxious to push on and should never have accomplished the ten miles row without Mr. Graham's encouraging go, go in Maori and a bottle of rum, which he gave to the chief to dole out. We turned into an arm of the lake, running up between the hills and passing a Maori settlement in a damp hollow. We saw before us a cloud of white steam rising from the midst of the mountains, and we knew where it came from, and longed for our first sight of those beautiful terraces of Rotobahana. They are unique in the world and comparable to no other wonder of nature. They are one of her most perfect works, perfect in conception, in form, and in color. After landing, we almost ran the mile and a quarter through the bracken and manuka scrub, 
hurrying on to each knoll to have the first view, and then disappointed, running down that one and on to the next. We were heedless of the blue and purple mountains around, ungrateful for what nature in her ordinary course had provided, looking only for her eccentricities. At last we could see them, in their general outline, a silica formation of white terraces in circular steps. We thought it disappointing, but not openly allowing so, we waded through the lukewarm water about an inch deep and stood at the bottom of Te Tarata, or the White Terrace. At the first step we came to, we were petrified with delight for a moment. Set in a basin of pure white silica, delicately carved and fretted, lay a pool of pale blue water, so pure in color, so opaque in substance. I wish I could convey to the sight of those who read this the merest reflection of that heavenly color, that pale tint found nowhere else upon earth. As we climbed upwards, we saw terrace upon terrace, with each circular brim hanging with beautiful stalactites and sponge and coral formation. The sun shining through the lace-like fringe on the coral-tipped edges sent forth a hundred reflections, and we were dazzled by the snowy whiteness of the silica. The water percolates and trickles gently over the petrified drapery of each little cup and basin, each drop leaving its tiny deposit of silica, which in the course of ages has formed the terrace. We waded through the warm water and picked our way along the little edges of the pools, lost in wonder at the delicate workmanship. The temperature rose gradually, and we found it nearly boiling as we reached the crater at the top. Again, the pool was of that indescribable blue, more beautiful when seen in such a large mass, but at the further end the cloud of vapor and steam we had seen rising in the distance partially hid from us a dark, angry mass of boiling water that was heaving and surging against the opposite crust of the crater. Ti Tarata is not always active. Sometimes the crater is perfectly dry, as it had been the previous week to our coming. We discovered here some ferns and morsels of branches petrified with silica, each leaf being perfectly encased and preserved with the glistening substance, but we found they were too brittle for transport and had to leave them there in their beauty and to their natural home. We came down the terrace step by step, lingering and turning back at each point to look under the overhanging lip at some still more curious formation of stalactite, some new beauty hidden away in a quiet corner. Still wading through the water, we came down the left side of the terrace and saw what I thought was almost the most beautiful part, a succession of little cups formed as regularly as the cells in large honeycomb, each containing its little pool of cerulean water. After leaving the terrace, we went through a glen in which the manuka scrub grew high above our heads and the carpet of bright green moss was hot to touch. One of the charms of Rotomahana and its terraces is the bright luxuriance vegetation in the midst of a tremendous volcanic action, where you would expect to see lava scoria, you find a tropical growth of ferns and parasites. Climbing up to the top of a hill, we looked down into the crater of Nagahapu, a geyser which spouts up furiously every few minutes. We gasped as we looked down into the black boiling water, which ceaselessly gathers itself into a swirling mass and throws up a jet of water, and then recoiling, rushes on to the sides.
we skirted round another which was still more active and which we had to be careful to get to leeward of to avoid being sprinkled with boiling spray above to a fissure in the rock we traced the ceaseless throbbing noise of the steamer it sounds as if inside here the waterworks of the geyser were being pumped up the manuka all round was encrusted with orange from the sulphur fumes and the ground was inlaid with different bits of brilliant colouring in red and green clay of mineral deposits we found luncheon spread out for us by two natives near the lake it was rather a hot corner to have chosen for in front of us there was a boiling mud-hole and behind and all around bubbling pools of hot water with steam issuing from the ground we sat on some rocks coloured pale yellow from the action of sulphur and ate the most delicious baked potatoes and curas the native shellfish that had been cooked in a few minutes by the easy process of holding them in nets in one of the hot pools i think we all thoroughly enjoyed that luncheon then the gentlemen were taken across the lake in the canoe to have their bath in the pool at the top before the ladies arrived we waited under the care of sophia for the return of the canoe sophia was a most attractive half-caste maori speaking english very prettily dressed in a red and black check skirt with a blue jacket bordered by red her black wavy hair flowing loosely from under a tyrolese hat she presented a most picturesque reminder of meg merrilese her lips like those of all the maori women were tattooed but hers were only done in straight lines as they had become too sore to continue with the down strokes which usually reached to the dimple of the chin she described to us the process of tattooing small holes are tapped into the skin with a sharp-pointed instrument and then filled with the prepared juice of the cowrie gum boiled down to a dark blue substance the mouth is fearfully sore for several days causing even death sometimes from gangrene and mortification the girls always go down to a town to have the operation carefully performed and then make it a ceremonious holiday sophia wore a beautiful piece of greenstone called tiki roughly carved that had been she said in her family for four hundred years she also wore suspended round her neck by a black ribbon a maori button made of a piece of circular bone bored through the centre and about the size of a crown piece we saw the canoe returning across the lake and dreaded the idea of getting in it was a native canoe formed out of the hollow trunk of a totara tree and shaped at both ends a rough wooden paddle was used by the old maori for working it along we had to get in cautiously one by one and lie down in the bracken at the bottom and when we were all in we were certainly not more than three inches from the water every motion in this frail bark was felt if anyone moved hand or arm there was an exclamation of alarm and when someone sneezed we felt as if the convulsive movement must capsize us on the reeds in the middle of the lake we saw many wild ducks and the pretty pukekel with its dark blue plumage and red bill the steam rising as we approached the shore alone indicated the marvellous wonder that greeted us as we suddenly rounded the sharp corner that brought us into the cove where the water was boiling and bubbling brightly and the glories of the pink terrace were unfolded before us 
the truth must be told and our first view of them was somewhat marred by the outline of figures that were creeping along the horizon after their bath it is very beautiful terrace after terrace shelving down to the water's edge with the same delicate and curious formation the same tender blue in the pools but not the same dazzling whiteness for these are coloured with the most delicate shade of pink streaked in places with carmine it is caused by the water previously running over red clay which becoming diluted leaves a pink deposit of silica on the terrace i thought the pink terrace or gotuka purangi maori quite as beautiful and more curious than the white but most people prefer the latter and undoubtedly it has the finest silica formation where the water ran down in some little hollows the sun shining over the pink produced the effect of a shower of opals and again in the little pools as the drops trickled over the brim of the basin there were a succession of minute rainbows seen for an instant and gone as soon a dash of green-coloured clay lay along either side before the dense border of manuka scrub was reached forming altogether a curious variety of pale shades in pink blue and green we saw the place in the centre terrace where the duke of edinburgh had carved his name the natives cut out the original and inserted instead a small tablet to show their appreciation of the honour but at the same time they thought that by thus writing his name his royal highness implied a possession of the terraces the lovely porcelain surfaces of both terraces are disfigured by names scribbled in pencil underneath the water government has now protected them by prohibiting this and laying a heavy penalty on all those who chip or carry away fragments of the silica the smell of sulphur here was as pregnantly strong as in the white terrace but the water is only hot and does not boil we felt we should never see the terrace again and lingered a tremendous shower of rain came on as we were packing again into the canoes it seemed heavy enough to have filled and swamped them we recrossed rotomahana to the river and then glided down the swift current of kaiwaka or canoe destroyer so called because of its rapids and sharp curves so dangerous to the equilibrium of canoes the natives paddled us most skilfully from the stern, and we lay at full length basking in the warm afternoon sun, and noting the embryo terraces that have formed along its tie-colored banks. Some of the gentlemen of the party ventured down the rapids. One canoe containing Mr. Graham and C. was nearly lost, the stream carrying it down stern first, before the native had time to get to his place to steer. He cried out to Mr. Graham, we are lost, but amid intense excitement they did get through and land in safety. We changed our shoes and stockings for the dry ones which we had been warned to bring with us, for we had been walking for several hours in warm water. We had a nasty headwind with a heavy sea running as we returned across Lake Tarawera, but the natives worked well and sang us some native airs, all joined in a chorus with gesticulations led by Sophia we had a very damp drive home rain falling in sheets the beauty vanished which we had admired so much that morning the fat gentleman whom i mentioned before was the subject of much amusement to the maoris the native who acted as a guide looked at him as he entered his bath and said if you had been here forty years ago 
you would have made a nice pie. It was translated to him, and we thought that we had had our revenge. It had seemed such a long day, and I went to bed worn out, and with my brain bewildered with all the wonderful things I had seen. End of chapter 8, part 2